Hey there, Parker X listeners. This is Brett Wood coming to you from quarantine one more time. In today's episode, my co-host Lester Mascon and Brett Galvin and I will continue the conversation about what's going on in the parking mobility world around COVID-19 and the recovery. We'll talk a little bit about what's happening in our communities of Charleston, South Carolina, the greater LA metro area, and Australia in the case of Brett Galvin, and what parking and mobility programs are doing to prepare for reopening after phase one of the pandemic. We'll talk a little bit about data-driven approaches, policies, and pricing, and how communities can prepare themselves for the return of parking demand in, in their areas. Uh, stay tuned after the closing credits for some outtakes and bloopers from this recording. I hope you enjoy. Um, I mentioned this on a call yesterday. Whenever we do one of these, it gets out of date within 24, 48 hours. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Oh, and that's interesting. Do we, are we at a point where we know anything really? And I, I was look, thinking about this earlier. Brett was sort of, he's been out there talking to a bunch of customers. He's been on a, a range of panels and a range of video conferences and industry sessions. And that strategy of where we're still kind of in a surveying phase, if that makes sense. So we're still trying to understand exactly what we've got and what it means. And that's an interesting time, I think, where we have to learn and adapt because it, the recovery hasn't happened yet and it's not even started. If that makes well, that's what it feels like at least. Here we, we have it hasn't a, really. We have a, a very low number now in the whole country. We're only just starting to ramp up schools. People are only starting to drive again. I still think there's, you know, we we can sort of look at do this, do that, think about this, think about that, but it's still in the phase of coming up with things that you can do we're testing them uh, i wouldn't certainly be wanting to spend money at the moment on things i just don't know it might be what they call a, a v-shaped recovery where people just normalize straight back into the behavior they had before without necessarily thinking about it and then we have a second wave where behavior really changes um i don't know yet it's just interesting to to think about the the age of these conversations and how quickly they change they do and i mean we're, we're in a place where like here in, in charleston south carolina we we have almost fully opened back up like the beaches open up tomorrow restaurants are opened up you can go sit down inside them i don't, I don't know how much business they're actually doing 
but one of the interesting things we've seen, like a lot of restaurants have moved their their tables into their parking lot. There's been discussions about opening up the streets and having outdoor seating just to, to kind of facilitate a more open air type experience. But we're it's it's not recovery, it's reopen. And mm-hmm. and in a lot of the conversations I've been having on these industry right. talks, um, there's two things that people are trying to figure out. And one is what is reopening for parking look like? And I, th- I think we're getting our arms around that, right? Like from a municipal parking perspective, there are staffing things, you know, getting, getting your offices, getting your equipment, getting your vehicles ready for staffing, clean, you know, staffing plans that don't have people partnered up. So we're still socially distanced, those types of things. And I think people are doing that. The recovery part of it, like people just don't know when offices are going to come back. You know, we don't know when on-street demand is going to come back to a level that it's at. And so you said testing. I mean, I think that's where people are. They're just kind of waiting and seeing, and they're incrementally bringing staff back associated with it. They're incrementally raising prices. It's fascinating. I worked on Seattle's performance-based parking program back in 2010 and helped them set that up in kind of the Shupian model. And they had gotten their highest prices up to like five or six dollars an hour in their in their downtown, and um, they're resetting all of their prices to fifty cents an hour everywhere because they turned it off for two months while everybody was locked down just to make it a, a convenience. And so I'm fascinated to see like what is the ramp up period for them where they go from fifty cents back to a dollar back to a dollar fifty, um, and it's just going to be a lot of like data analytics and and understanding like when can you message to people we're going back up with our prices again and here's why. Um, and it might be a rough road. I mean, like in a lot of places, you take out paid parking, you turn the enforcement off, mm-hmm. you do this for two months, people get used to it, um, and trying to bring that back, you might have mutiny of people like I I, I want to go back to the wild west and and we just can't <laughs> do that right so. Um, and to the equipment point of it, like I, I, there were several people I've talked to that were, that were going to go out for new parking meters this year, um, and have decided not to, and they're pushing mobile pay as a contactless payment. And they're not even sure, like, will we buy more parking meters or will we just repurpose the old ones and try to push for more mobile pay? So that's going to be interesting from a technology perspective, what, what people do on street. I mean, off street, I, I think it's different. You still have to have it, but, um, it, it will be. The next few months are going to be interesting. Yeah, I do think I've noticed a lot of uh, demand now for automation where facilities that were traditionally not automated, that the it's almost this gas, you know, the, the gas station attendant kind of method thought, right? It's like people still had the idea that customer service meant having people in the facility in the garage, and even those holdouts are kind of starting to move away. They don't want to have to counter people when they're in the garage as few people as possible get the people out let's get the automation in place connectivity back to command centers uh remote intercom connections all that it's just the only thing that we've been doing finally yeah. the, the holdouts are converting to automation it only took an act of god for it to happen. <laughs> um, well i mean it's funny you say that because i mean a lot of the things that we've been talking about like in in the curbside ver- uh, arena We've been talking about automated enforcement forever. Like we've got to automate enforcement if we're going to monetize short-term transactions, delivery, pickup, drop-off, yep. grocery delivery, whatever. And and the the political pushback was we we can't do that. But now I think we're in a place where you you could get that passed. 
Right, because yeah. it's contactless, it's social distancing, and it allows you to, to structure your, your revenue so that you're not wholly dependent on parking. Because if it goes away again, guess what's not going to go away? Curbside delivery and pickup drop-off and curbside takeout, and you, you have to monetize those things so we don't drop 85% again. Yeah, see, no doubt. I'll, it'll be interesting to see how they start managing that. Yeah, yeah, it will be. Um and how quickly they can they can implement some of those things because you know cities are not known for moving quickly, um, so to, to to ramp up in a time when we needed to ramp up to to accommodate demands, um, it's going to be it's going to be crucial. So we've opened up here in one state fully, and it was Christmas level shopping at shopping centers. Mm-hmm. Um, really? Which was, it's an interesting, you know, they were told not to, but obviously you can't stop capitalism. So you can't stop the economy. You can't stop consumers from getting what they want. So that the results from that will, will be interesting. But as a flood of, um, a, a flood event, that's pretty interesting to, to see that that's what happened straight away. Uh, there was, I'm working on something and I, I like your opinion on it. The interesting, um, thing at the moment the connection between demand and supply and the prices that we set for parking and parking spaces Um, i'm working on a project at the moment where there's not a clear connection there wasn't a clear connection before there certainly isn't a clear connection now so the rates that that we're charging were so far out of out of the the market that you know, it stunted any occupancy in the car park. And so I think we're going to find that again. The, 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 we're going to have a, a situation where the supply of car parks is, is far higher than the, the rate that we need to achieve as an economy or a council or municipality to pay back those those services that are there. So at a macro level, I still think that there's there's going to be a lower demand than there was before well i think there has to be right with i mean with with as much reduced you know well it depends how quickly people try to come back but i am i do think that with reduced curb availability that will put more pressure on the structures themselves so if we actually change some of these city streets into walking areas or biking areas restaurants start moving outside opening up more space uh you could certainly see more demand on the facilities themselves less availability of inventory on the street that's right i mean in, in, even if we don't do the, the the street closures if you start reallocating space for more goods movement it's going to push it off street yeah. as well supply chain yeah i mean and but do you, your, you, do you your do question because you do you do that do you reallocate things because there's not the demand there that there once was because otherwise those things were going somewhere else they were going down side streets they were going other places I think I think it's a combination of of a little less demand from a parking perspective overall, and a higher demand for the continued movement of goods. Um, I, I just I don't mm. I don't think we're going to see that go down even once we come completely out of shelter in place or or we feel comfortable. I still think you're going to see a lot of people, and we were already in the movement where Amazon was bringing us everything, right? And now and now we've realized that you know. Instacart can bring us groceries and whatnot, and um, so you're going to see more of a demand for those types of things, even when when people are 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 feeling safer. And we talked about it in one of the last podcasts. One of the things we've all realized is the commodity of time that we have more time when we're not doing some of these things. Um, 
I, I think that's going to uh, lead to that. I think to your point about supply demand, I mean, to go back to one I of our, it was, I guess it was the, the point was really that we'll, we'll need to readjust supply, but also just connect, connect price to, to demand more effectively. Well, and that are you having conversations around repricing? Yep. Constantly. Yeah. yeah Figuring those out and, and, and the move away from monthly parkers. I mean, there's still going to be monthly parkers, but if people start working remote one day a week or two days a week, they're going to see less value in paying 150 a month. So instead, maybe it's a flexible pass or paying daily. But, you know, Shoop, I mean, we, we talk about Shoop on here. I mean, Shoop talks about market-based prices mm-hmm. um, and his methodology for doing it is measuring how demand changes when price changes. And we normally can't do that because we don't have access to that data we have a really amazing opportunity right now as we reopen to capture that data in some form and see what happens. If, if, if Seattle says we're going to go 50 cents an hour for the first month and then they see a lot of demand and go up to a dollar an hour, they can do a before and after where they couldn't really before. Um, and so I think I didn't want to rock the boat with what the income stream they had potentially. Well, not, not just that. I mean, it, okay. I mean, it takes a lot to get that data. So um, I think it, it will be interesting we, we will get more data driven in our programs than we have been, which is, which is a good thing. Um, yeah. You can throw out so much data from before. Yeah. Which is. Well, you can, but I mean, now, now with, with uh, meters and, and parks and those types of things, just, just counting transactions, gate up, gate down, number of transactions and watching the volume of those things change over the next few months, you have the data to be able to repurpose what you've been doing. I think. So what would you suggest to like any, any cities right now that are looking at this? Um, a, don't be afraid to reinstitute paid parking because if you do and you linger until the end of summer, you may never get it back in again. Um, and for those that have been toying with the idea of data-driven pricing, now's the time to do it. Um, pitch it to your council, pitch it to your city manager, pitch it to them as a means of balancing demand and 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 being price sensitive to commuters and, and patrons and use real data to start setting your price rather than have it be a dollar an hour everywhere even though you don't need it in places so um, I think now is the time to be somewhat aggressive in setting more modern policies around your program so what does that mean though data-driven pricing I mean I, I conceptually I could I'm pretty sure I know what that means but like in detail like what is it exactly what exactly are you doing to set your price? Is that per facility, per street? Is it would be, it yeah, per street, per facility. Maximizing revenue? I mean, so in theory, we're not doing this for revenue. We're doing this to balance demand. So if you've got one area that more people want to be and they crowd into the facilities and they crowd into the streets and they're circling for parking more, you, know, you set that a little higher than a few blocks away. And incrementally over time, you're going to see people move a few blocks away to get that cheaper parking and it tends to balance things out. Um, and so you give somebody an equitable option a few blocks away and they just have to walk or you give somebody kind of a higher price option to be right in front of the business. And you do that on street and off street, typically by area um, and start setting prices that way. Uh, and again, you know, Seattle is a great example where they did that and they started to see places where it was above 90% occupancy on average fall to about 75, 80%. And, and again, in the Shupian model, one to two spaces per block open at any given time so you don't have people searching for parking they can drive right up and and it turns over quicker so what's what's changed now is you have an opportunity to have a sandbox i yep. think that's what you so traditionally 
municipalities pricing strategies move reasonably slowly and it again it takes something like a glacier to move even a few a few pennies one way or the other so um this presents i guess an opportunity or an interesting time over the next six months to play with that potentially because there's a i, I guess there's an argument to say we sh we need to start dropping price to to encourage a connection between supply and demand and then and, we and can then start to ratchet look at the data and then ratchet up where it where it starts to normalize yeah, the, the key to success with that is that you've got to be really transparent about why you're doing it, and you've got to show people the data in a way that they can understand to say, look, there's so many people crowding into this area, we're raising prices, and then a month later you show them that that normalized and people have moved to other places. Show them it's working, and they tend to not fight back as hard. So how often would you make a change like that? Because I, I could see you making a change like that and let's say it's a real severe change where it gets really expensive to park in a certain area it gets really cheap down the street you could actually affect real estate prices or rent prices in that area and then all of a sudden this area becomes more in demand because the parking's cheaper and easier to get but then if you go and change that then all of a sudden you kind of upset what just happened <laughs> All yeah, of a it's a delicate. Go somewhere else. It's it, like you got to be it, careful, it, right? It's a delicate balance. Sure. I mean, San Francisco was the first one, right? SF Park, they did it, you know, with an FHWA grant, and they were changing prices every month, um, really? which I think they 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 realized was a little too frequent. Uh, Seattle yeah. does it once a year. Uh, I know other programs that do it a couple of times a year, uh, but but I mean that's normal circumstances coming coming out of this. Yeah. Like again, you know, if if you're beginning to set prices and adjust them as demand comes back, it may be every couple of months for the next six to eight months until you see some normalizing of the demand. So if you're a, if you're a city manager or you're you know, director of public works and you're in charge of parking and transportation for your city, I mean, what sort of, you know, what, what do you have to craft to put in front of your city council to allow you that flexibility to wildly you know, move the rates around? If you need to? It's got to take special, something's got to be put in front of them to put them prove that right yeah it's typically in the form of an ordinance and and the number one thing that you need to do is is set a floor for how low you're willing to go and you know that should be based on you know your operations and how much does a meter transaction actually cost if, if you charge 25 cents an hour are you losing money with that transaction and then more importantly they want to see a ceiling right so we're not going to get to 14 dollars an hour we're going to cap it at let's say six dollars an hour um and I did that in Phoenix like 10 years ago. We, we set them up when they never went to dynamic pricing, but we set up their ordinance so they could if they wanted to. Um, okay. And everybody lost their mind over the $6 that they never got to. But um, the other piece of it then is like in that ordinance, it needs to say how much you will change at any given time, 50 cents an hour every couple months. Um, and then what the data, what just what the equation is that you're using to make that decision. Um, and if you set that up and you get that through your city manager or your city council, then you, the parking program manager, have the authority to go change rates on whatever increment you've set up, and you don't have to go back to them every time you change rates. And that's that's the beauty of doing this is you take that decision out um, and you make it easier until you have to change the floor or the ceiling to, to have to do it again. Is there, a, is there a scenario where you would want, as a global strategy, you would want to make money from your parking asset but there might be certain pockets where you 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 accept a loss on the payment program 
in order to generate demand. It's quite possible and, and to get demand back and then begin adjusting from there. And I think you'll see a lot of people doing that in a competitive environment to try to get patrons back at the beginning and then, and then make adjustments after that. Mm. The, the, the interesting thing about parking as a program from a municipal standpoint, um, I don't know many that make money off of one aspect of their parking. It's when you put everything together, right? So the enforcement, the on-street revenue, the off-street revenue, I mean, monthly, whatever you're getting, once you put all that together, you can begin to pay for the assets um, that you've invested a lot of money in, the garages that are, you know, $25,000 a space. The interesting opportunity here is that the normal behavior or the pattern behavior has gone out the window. So for those who do this really well, there's an opportunity to gain customers from competition that you traditionally weren't able, their behavior was so normalized that they wouldn't turn their head for something else. Now there's a potential option if you come out of the blocks well and you do this well and you time it well and, and you have your strategies in place and, and you're ready, then potentially the the competition isn't there at all if, if their uh, business falls over, but also just if they don't do it as well, you have an opportunity here which potentially can gain more customers, which is, I, I think, an interesting interesting thing for you, Lester, in particular, um, to help out with. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I, and I, I, I love the idea, too. And I think you do need to balance, uh, you know, places where you've got performance-based uh, space, the retail space that's being leased, uh, as well as cities that actually own a lot of the real estate, and they're actually renting office space or renting retail space in certain areas. So it really kind of how can we affect and how can we drive revenue uh, to those different areas? I, th I think a tricky thing is going to be trying to figure out what it is that's going to drive the customer's decision on the back end of this. And we talked about in a previous podcast that mm -hmm. like facility cleanliness and things like that and feeling safe and secure, I mean, that's, that's marketable over the next few months. But then when that wears off and we feel safe, then, then what's the next thing that's driving them? And I think, I think as a private or public operator manager, You've got to be pretty quick to react and, and, and nimble over the next few months to continue to kind of bring customers to you. Yeah, the, the aesthetic of being safe versus actually making things safe. There's only, in, in this environment, there's only so much you can do to actually make something safe. But if you can make it look safe, maybe that's an outcome. Well, look, I'm watching all these people run around with those uh, N95 masks that have like the exhaust port on the front. So basically it only filters the air that you're bringing in, but when you breathe out, the little port opens up and all the air goes out. So, I mean, right. it's like how effective are any of those things? It's more of a perception, I think, than anything else. Hmm. Yeah. I don't think any of us <laughs> knows what safe is. So, right. Yeah. So. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. So There's a lot of discussion about that. Yeah. So it's an interesting microcosm having the U.S. have different regions and different states at different levels of infection. Because there's an option to, to look at different areas to see what they're doing, to see um, what's, what's making sense. And, and there'll be a lot of missteps, as many missteps as there will be successes. So back to... Back to really that surveying, reading, learning, 
um, I think that's the best we can do at the moment. Um, Montana and Alaska are doing it perfect, though, if you look at their numbers. <laughs> I think they were set up for this, right? Yeah. yeah. Everybody lives 30 miles away from the other person, so, uh, yeah. No doubt. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Parker X podcast. We sincerely appreciate it and hope you are enjoying our content. Please remember to rate, review, comment, subscribe, and share. And follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. The following has been a production of Parker X. All right. I'm recording. Okay. You're recording. <laughs> I'm recording. Yeah. <laughs> this is being recorded. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I'm the most excited about is I got a haircut yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Legal or illegal? I don't know. It was in some dude's house in his garage and you know, I had to go through the back door, so um is I that suspect how you paid that we for were, it? it was it was the gray area. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm not yeah. gonna talk about how I paid for it. <laughs> um, but, it but I promise you it was contactless. <laughs> Very good. Very good. But yeah, we took the we took the kids in and they all went and got a haircut. That was very exciting. I haven't been happier about anything in a while. I have not. Funny. I've still got a nice flowing mullet, and uh, I'm refusing to get a haircut now. Like I'm just I'm growing it as long as I can grow it. Yeah. I shaved. That's you know, about as much as I've I've got. I wanted to. I thought what? I was gonna do the shave and the hair. I thought I was gonna do like let the beard grow out and stuff. Turns out I don't grow a beard very well. The goatee is about all that happens, and then you know the rest is just uh, scraps. Hmm.